We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork. Our Torah reading for this morning, Parashat Vayeshev, is found on page 141 in the Hertz and page 226 in the Yitzchayim Chumash. It begins Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, and it opens on a somewhat tranquil note with Jacob dwelling finally in the land of his ancestors. And it begins seemingly as a happily ever after for Jacob. He's dwelling in the land of his ancestors. He's got a large family. He seems to have inherited the blessings of Abraham and Isaac and is in the process of fulfilling the destiny promised them by God of having progeny as numerous as the stars of the sky, the dust of the earth, and inheriting the land of Canaan. But the story pretty quickly takes a uh, dark and tragic turn as we begin to hear the saga of Jacob's son Joseph, one of his youngest sons, Joseph, the oldest of Rachel's sons, who we are told is ben zikunim to Jacob, a child of Jacob's old age, perhaps. Others say a child that bears Jacob's likeness or was most like Jacob. And whatever it means, we learn that Jacob loved Joseph more than the other brothers. And Joseph, it seems, is cognizant of this special status that he has in his father's household. And the other brothers are cognizant of this special status that Joseph has in their household. And so animosity brews between Joseph and his other brothers, who are jealous of his status, who resent his status. And it is exacerbated when Joseph starts having dreams that he either enjoys or is unsettled by, we're not sure, but nevertheless reports them to his brothers. Maybe he thinks that they are prophetic dreams. Maybe he thinks that they are descriptions of reality. We're not sure what the brothers think about the dreams other than the fact that they are unsettled by them. The dreams reflecting a dynamic in which they, as well as Jacob and Joseph's mother, will bow down to to Joseph as their superior. A dream of sheaves of wheat bowing down to Joseph's sheave. A dream of 
Joseph as a star with the sun and moon and other stars bowing down to Joseph. And so the brothers, unsettled by these dreams, and jealous of Joseph's status, hatch a plot to kill him. Eventually that plot is transformed to simply sell him off into slavery, but it starts out as a plot to kill him. And what is, I think, notable about this moment where the story takes perhaps its darkest turn, where the brothers hatch this plot to kill him, is how they identify him and talk to him and about him in that piece of the narrative. And here I want to uh, thank Canta Rosenblatt for this extraordinary gift that she gave me this week of uh, this book called Torah Queries, which some of you I know have been studying or study from time to time and are familiar with, a, a, a book of weekly commentaries on the, on the Hebrew Bible uh, uh, written uh, by uh, uh, members of the LGBT community and reflecting insights uh, from the Torah that, uh, that are particular to uh, the, uh, the LGBT community. And in some ways, it's possible to read the Joseph story as a story of perhaps the first queer person in the Torah. Uh, Joseph with his amazing Technicolor dream coat. Uh, Joseph, who uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, is occupied with his, uh, with, with his appearance and his appearance vis-a-vis his brothers. Joseph, who is in some sense an outsider to his brothers. Many people in the LGBT community see Joseph as reflecting the gay and lesbian and queer experience in their lives. And so... Here is what Greg Drinkwater says about this moment in the Torah portion in which the story takes its darkest turn. The brothers now in Shechem conspire to kill Joseph. And when they see him coming, they say to each other, Look, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. They do not call him by his name or reference him as their brother. Rather, they distance themselves from him calling him out as the dreamer, the queer, as the other who they know now disowned and refuse to empathize or even speak with. What this commentary, this commentary points out is that the brothers devise their plot to kill Joseph and then ultimately just to get rid of Joseph through identifying him not by name and not as their brother, but as the dreamer, by otherizing him by stripping him in some sense of his humanity and of their relationship to him. And in doing that, they become more readily able to perpetrate an atrocity against him, to harm him, to oppress him. And this is a reality that has been borne out throughout history, that when we dehumanize somebody, when we can categorize them in a certain box, and therefore strip them of their humanity and our relationship to them as equals, as fellow human beings, when we do that, it becomes easier to oppress, to brutalize, to tyrannize, to harm. And see what happens to Joseph through this process of dehumanization, through his othering, through his being labeled, not as Joseph, not as my brother, but as the dreamer. They devise to kill him, cooler heads prevail, they sell him into slavery. 
goes down into slavery. Ultimately, he rises in the ranks in Egypt, as we'll learn in next week's Torah portion. And ultimately, through that process, the rest of the brothers and Jacob come down to Egypt too. They prosper for a time. And what happens to Jacob and his ancestors, Jacob and his descendants, when they go down to Egypt? Ultimately, they prosper for a time until a new pharaoh arises. A pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, who doesn't have the relationship with Joseph and Joseph's family that previous pharaohs did. A ruler who sees of the, this population that's living in Egypt, not as a population of human beings, but if you were to read the language in the opening of Exodus, in a sense as a population of animals that, that are peruvi shritsu, they're swarming and teething in Egypt. And that is how Pharaoh sees them, and it's how he calls upon Egyptians to see all of these Israelites, these Hebrews who are living in Egypt, not as other people, not as individuals with whom they have been in decades-long relationship with, but rather as an unidentifiable, dehumanized mass of others. And by doing that, Pharaoh facilitates their oppression and their harm. Now, I don't know if the saga of Joseph is actually telling a history. And I think in some sense it's better, it's, it's more helpful to view it outside a historical context and just to see what the narrator is trying to get us to see in this story, which is ultimately a story about how the children of Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place which is ultimately a story about how we came to be enslaved and brutalized in the first place in Egypt, a process that, according to the Torah, had to happen in order to facilitate our ultimate redemption. We had to be enslaved in order to know what it would be like to create a society that was antithetical to oppression. And the Joseph story drives that narrative down. And so what then is the message of this opening of the Joseph story, the generating incident that drives Joseph to Egypt and ultimately Joseph's family to Egypt and ultimately all the children of Israel into Egypt where they are also dehumanized and otherized, brutalized and oppressed. And the generating incident is when the brothers no longer see Joseph as their brother when the brothers no longer see Joseph as Joseph, but see him and identify him and label him only as the dreamer. And so the Torah, in a sense, is saying to us, do you see the pain and suffering and harm and oppression that comes when we deliberately characterize and categorize our fellow human beings as other than us, as wholly different from us, as outside of relationship with us, that we label them in a way that strips them of their humanity and makes them exclusively in the category we put them in. Do you see what happens when we do that? Joseph is harmed. Ultimately, all of, all of the children of Israel are oppressed through 
that process. And so the liberation story of the Israelites ultimately is about the recognition of that fact, the recognition of our common humanity, and the service of a God who is so committed to investing us with that lesson that we can't even pronounce that God's name. Not only are we not supposed to draw a picture of that God, we're not supposed to craft an image of that God, we can't even call that God by a specific name. Why? Because when we label other people, when we categorize other people, when we otherize other people, we strip them of their humanity, we create divisions between us, we perpetuate inequality. And so the liberation story of the Israelites is to come to serve a God who transcends all labels, all identifying marks, so as to remind each other that we engage each other as infinitely valuable, fundamentally equal, and profoundly undefinable relations between each other. This is my final Shabbat with the congregation for 2019. I'm going on vacation. Uh, and so I don't know uh, what uh, Cantor has planned for next Shabbat, but I find myself as we're gathered this Shabbat reflecting on the year that's passed. And indeed, since this is the end of the decade, I find myself reflecting on the decade that has passed. Um, and it is also the Shabbat immediately before Hanukkah, and so therefore, uh, it will be the, uh, the last Shabbat I am with you before we go off to celebrate Hanukkah. And so what does this story of Joseph and the otherizing of Joseph have to do with the end of 2019, the end of the 2010s, and with the story of Hanukkah? If we think back on the decade that has passed, I think one of the recurring themes is the otherizing of groups of people, the divisions that have emerged between groups of people and the tribalized identities that have flourished in that vacuum, and the ways in which people on different sides of divides are able to categorize and therefore dehumanize people who don't think, act, talk, speak, look, live like they do. This is a decade in which we've seen the dismantling of previous archetypes, archetypes and images and categories that have dehumanized people. The profound transformation in how we relate to LGBT people in this country, the profound transformation in how we relate especially to transgender people in this country. I've been thinking about how uh, in, in 2019 especially, but throughout this past decade, we've come to talk about with, with, with more honesty and with more openness about the history of racialized oppression in this country, even going so far as to not refer to people who were enslaved in the 18th and 19th, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries in this country, to not call them slaves, but to call them enslaved peoples. Why? Because they were not actually slaves. They were not property. 
They were people who were enslaved. So to restore their humanity and not categorize them by a label that somehow makes them less than or other. And I've seen the opposite, and we've seen the opposite over the past decade, where people have attempted to gain power and influence by otherizing people and by slapping labels on people by therefore dehumanizing people, making them less than in order to exert control and in the process harming them. This has been, I think, one of the themes and stories of the decade that has passed. And so the call that our Torah holds out for us in this week's portion is in the year to come will we continue on that trajectory or will we forge a new path in which we affirm the fundamental humanity of each individual we see our fellow as as fully human as indivisibly human and as infinitely human as we are, where we refuse to call them by labels and characterizations and names, will we lift each other up or will we try to put each other into boxes so that we can each stake our ground and exert dominance and control? And that, I think, is where Hanukkah comes in. Because as we light our Hanukkiyot, when we light our Hanukkah candles, this is halacha lamaaseh, this is practical Jewish law. Your Hanukkiyah, the candles actually need to be in a straight line. They have to be in a row. They can't be in some in back, some in front. They can't be too close to each other so that the lights become conflated with one another. They can't be in a circle so that it looks like a bonfire. Each light has to stand individually and in a straight line. Why? Because each of the lights needs to be equally lit and equally visible. And each of the line, each of the candles needs to have its own unique light. It needs to be seen for having its own unique light. And so for Hanukkah, and in 2020, and in the decade ahead, may we live to embody the, the promise and the lesson of those Hanukkah candles. Holding our own unique light as indivisibly important and equally valuable, and seeing the light that each and every other person has as being of critical importance, inseparable from the larger whole, and necessary 